I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you. Hi everyone, I'm Jason Ballara, and this is the Know Your Why podcast. Today I'm here with Nick McGrew. Nick is a securities attorney at Polymath Legal. He's assisted in over 100 syndications or funds, allowing his clients to acquire more than $800 million in assets. Uh, And I'm happy to say I am one of those clients. He is my attorney and has helped me acquire assets. So um, thank you, Nick. Thank you for coming on today. I really appreciate it. I appreciate your time. I obviously appreciate all that you've done for for my business, but, uh, but thank you for being here today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Very happy to be here. Awesome. Nick, would you maybe just start by just sharing a bit of your background, kind of, you know, we know you're an attorney, but let, let's know a little bit more about how you got there and and uh, and then we'll dive into kind of some of the, I guess, <laughs> prerequisite ask the attorney questions. <laughs> yes, sounds good. Um, yeah, so as you mentioned, I'm an attorney. I'm also actually a tenured professor of law as well. So law is what I'm doing in and out all the time and really enjoy it. Uh, I started out my career working in real estate law to begin with. And so that's always been a big interest of mine. Um, and then I'd say I started out doing real estate, I'd say probably about six or seven years ago, um, started getting very heavy into syndications. I had done a few before that, um, but around 2014 or so is when I started getting really heavy into it. And so now syndications is probably 60 to 70% of my practice. And I love it and enjoy it, get to work with awesome clients like you. Um, and yeah, it's a lot of fun for me. Yeah, awesome. I didn't, I didn't realize that you were a tenured professor. That's amazing. Um, and, and recently married, congratulations. We'll, we'll <laughs> put you, that out there you, too. Yes. <laughs> um, but uh, so, I, I, you know, there's, I think there's a lot of questions that, that come up in terms of syndication and, and, and securities law and things like that. So, so maybe we'll just kind of start with some of that, you know, kind of the basics. And um, when you, I guess, would you just actually say what, what a securities attorney what, what exactly define that and kind of what your role is in the process for, for people that don't know? Yeah, so I'll first start out with defining what a security is because there still is some confusion and some people are sometimes selling a security and not even realizing it. Uh, so I, the thing that I always say is the SEC doesn't make a whole lot of things clear all the time, but the definition of, of a security is one that is very clear. Um, it comes from uh, the Howey case uh, I believe it was in 1946, um, and still good law, still uh, operable today. And it essentially says that if we have an investment into a common enterprise with an expectation of profit, primarily from the efforts of somebody else, then that's a security. So if you're pulling money together, investing it, you're expecting that you're going to get a return from that investment, and that return is going to be from the work of someone else, so you're being passive. Uh, then uh, that's a security. And so uh, the court and SEC goes further and says that if you're selling a security, then you either must register that security or have an exemption. 
So registration, we hear about IPOs and lately the SPOCs and all sorts of like that. We're talking about publicly traded companies essentially. Um, um, and there's, there's other varying degrees of registration, but that's typically what we're talking about. Um, I work in the exempt area. So um, none of my clients, as I know of, are trying to go public, at least not yet. Um, and particularly for real estate exempt, a lot of the deals are done through exempt offerings. So what we do is once our client says, hey, we are gonna be taking passive investors, then we sit down and kind of see what their goals are and see which exemptions might work for them. And then we make sure that their actions are compliant with whatever the requirements of that exemption are. Perfect. And so maybe you could also describe, you know, sort of the, the different types of uh, syndications that you'll see in the, the different, maybe the different, probably the, the description is the different types of capital raising techniques is maybe a better way to put it. However you want to break it down, but sort of, when you're when clients come to you and we say, hey, this is, you know, I need to raise $10 million. And you have a, I know, because I've seen the questionnaire, but there are some very specific questions about, you know, how, what your anticipation, anticipated goals are and all of that. So maybe uh, define for us kind of the types of capital raising and, and, you know, we'll start there, I guess, is probably the best way to go. Yeah, so with uh, trying to raise that capital, um, there's, like I said, there's multiple exemptions. I still have found in the you know, over 100 that I've done for real estate specifically, Regulation D works very, very well in most situations. Um, and one of the reasons for that is that it's one of the exemptions to where you just need to comply with it. And if something goes wrong, you need to be able to show that you were in compliance. Whereas some of the other exemptions, that even though you don't have to go through all the registration of a, a full public offering, sometimes there is some back and forth with the SEC. Um, for instance, Regulation A um, and Regulation CF for crowdfunding, uh, both of those uh, require um, the SEC to kind of give a sign off before you can start raising capital. And so with that, we're talking about a large government bureaucratic agency, it's gonna take a long time. And so if we're looking at a real estate deal a lot of times you might have you know, 30, 45, 90, even 120 days to close. But if we're waiting on the SEC, uh, they might take 100 or more days just to get back and say, yeah, you can raise that capital. And by that time, your deal has already uh, expired essentially. Um, so Regulation D is the one that often works really, really well for uh, at least uh, the clients that I have that are doing uh, syndication. Um, and within Regulation D, there's two options that you have within that. Um, there's 506B and 506C. And the difference between the two of them primarily rests on uh, the types of investors that you're seeking. So uh, with accredited investors, simply put, there's other ways to be an accredited investor, but the common way is through income or um, net worth. And so an individual that makes $200,000 or more um, or has a net worth of $1 million or more exclusive of their primary home is typically going to be accredited. Then there's sophisticated investors who are not accredited, but essentially they have the resources to determine whether this is a good deal and fits kind of their risk profile and, and their investment needs. And so it's between their education, their experience, current investments, or maybe with the use of a financial planner or advisor, um, can they determine whether this is a good deal for them or not? And so when we're looking at 506B or 506C, 506C says you can have an unlimited number of accredited investors uh, and you don't have to know them or anything like that. Only thing we have to do is make sure that they're accredited 
And with that, you can do general solicitation. So you can advertise your deal, um, assuming that you're advertising it in a place that you reasonably believe is uh, to accredited investors. So you can kind of tell the world, so to speak, about your 506C deal. Whereas with 506B, um, you can have an unlimited number of accredited investors, and you can also have up to 35 sophisticated uh, uh, investors. Now with that, the exchange that you're getting, um, in this one, you're allowed to have people that are not accredited, but in exchange, you must have a pre-existing substantial relationship with all of your investors, whether they're accredited or not. Um, and now this is one of those areas where SEC hasn't done a great job of defining what pre-existing and substantial is. Um, but I typically tell clients that you want to meet with the, the investor three times, uh, typically at least more than 30 days. Again, these are not hard, fast rules, but these are the guidance that I give to try to make sure that we're within the right area of that gray area. Um, so meet with them three times, uh, have at least 30 days of a history with them. And when you're meeting with them, you're talking about the types of investments that they have, uh, the, their risk tolerance. You're not getting into any advising or anything like that, but you're trying to understand, uh, are they sophisticated? What is their investment experience? Do they understand or have the resources to vet this type of deal? Um, because with either one of them, you're gonna have to verify their status. Um, and one of the steps of verification is providing them with a questionnaire. If you're doing a 506 c you're gonna need to do more than that. Um, but I basically tell my clients, it's substantial. It's a substantial relationship if when you send them that questionnaire that's asking about their investor status, you kind of already know what they're going to put on there. So you know if they're going to put that they're sophisticated, you know the things that they're going to put on there as to why they're sophisticated and things like that. Oh, that that's a great explanation. I, I'd like to maybe talk a little bit about uh, Regulation A and, and crowdfunding because I think that that's, so, as you said, mo most of us are doing you know, Reg D and, and doing 506B or C, but, but crowdfunding and Regulation A are interesting to me in part because now, and correct me if I'm wrong, there's crowd or Regulation A is a way sort of around the accredited investor requirement, but you can still advertise. Am I, am I way off base on that? But you're, you're correct. Both Reg A and Reg CF, um, essentially, it's not really a way around, but there's additional uh, compliance requirements that essentially makes it less of a consumer threat. Um, and so the, the investor requirements are a little bit more relaxed. Um, so with both of them, Reg A and Reg CF, as I mentioned before, um, the SEC is going to look at your documents and tell you, hey, you need to add this in or add some more disclosures or ask questions. And they're going to, they're not approving your, um, your offering and saying this is a good deal or anything like that, but they are um, checking it and qualifying it to make sure that it meets their requirements for those given exemptions. And so with that, because there is a lot more disclosure, there's a lot more um, kind of public facing information that you're required to give for both of those, the uh, requirements on the investor uh, um, income or status is relaxed. So, uh, and I may even be getting this slightly off because I don't deal with Reg A and Reg CF daily. Um, but if I recall correctly, I believe if you're not accredited um, for Reg A and Reg CF, then the, you're limited to the lower of 10% of your income or 10% of your net worth. But it's just 10%. So if your income's $100 and your net worth is $100, you can still invest $10 into that deal theoretically. 
um, regardless of your income. Uh, whereas if you are accredited, then typically those those uh, limitations are not there for the two of them. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, and is that something that you would have to do essential file for on each deal? I know you said it takes a long time, or can you almost preemptively file and then have whatever deals you do after that sort of fall in line, or it's, it's on a per deal basis? Um, you could do it either way. If you were trying to do it as a kind of one filing continually, you'd want to be thinking about your uh, offering and your company as, for lack of a better word, a fund in that you're setting this up and you're going to be able to raise capital continually. And unlike with a typical syndication where I can say my returns are retied to that building right there, uh, with this, how you'd set it up is that you'd say we're going to give a certain amount of returns and then be your job as the operator to go out and find deals and assets to acquire that can meet those uh, projections. Okay. okay, awesome. That's good to know. Um, so, you know, going back to Reg D and, and the, the more, I guess, common and typical way that it's done, your, do you have, I've always wondered this, do you have any idea why it's 35 sophisticated investors what that seems like a kind of a weird random number is there something behind that why why they choose that for for reg uh you know i i don't and i've actually wondered that before too and now that you're asking again i'm like maybe i should have my assistant do some research on that and see kind of what was going on in the room when they came up with that number it just it just seems like a random num you know it's not it's not a percentage of the number of investors that you have or what it's just 35 however <laughs> Yep. It just kind of always struck me as a, fu a funny number. Um, so when you're, when you're doing one of these deals, and one of the things that I think comes up a lot in terms of raising capital is someone who is just raising capital. And I know there's a lot behind that, like whether or not they can be on the GP side of things, can you maybe talk a little bit about that, how that works, what the process is, where I think my understanding is you're not actually supposed to just raise capital. That's then you're, you're selling securities, basically. So how does, how does that all work and how does the SEC look at it? Yeah, so you're hitting on what you're running into if you are just a capital raiser. And I don't like using that term because it has some bad SEC connotations. Right. Um, but if you are just a capital raiser, the issue is that if you are being paid what, what the SEC calls a transaction-based compensation, meaning that you're being paid based upon an investment being made, or you're being paid, or the amount you're being paid is based upon the amount of investment, that's a transaction-based um, compensation. And if you're doing that to sell securities, you must be a licensed broker-dealer. Um, so you've got to have a securities license in order to do that. Your only other option is to be a finder um, and as of right now, the finder's rule is just pointless. Um, thankfully, they have a proposed change to it, but this proposed change has been proposed for, I think, about 18 months now. So we'll see where that's going to go. Um, but the current finder's rule essentially says that if you're going to pay somebody for to find people that want to invest in your security, you've got to pay them for the introduction only. So you're paying them for the handshake or the email intro. And if they introduce you to 100 people and all of them say, why are you spamming me with all this nonsense? I don't want it. Too bad. You still got to pay them. Because if we make their payment based upon how many of those 100 invest or how much they invest, 
then we're back to a uh, transaction-based compensation, which they would have to have a license. So um, the current state is that being a capital raiser uh, without a license is not going to fare well for you. Um, now, some things that uh, you could do is if you are a true general partner. So what I see sometimes is that people say, oh, yeah, I'm a GP. And really, their only role was to raise capital. Um, now, there are some situations where if we have maybe a small group, like say we're doing a ground up development, maybe you own the land, I have a construction company, and another person has you know, a lot of high net worth people. The three of us could come together, and sure, that one person is kind of the capital raiser, but they're having a much more significant role in the deal, um, and they're a crucial piece of the uh, puzzle that you and I would have been missing in that scenario. Something like that probably could work. We still want to make sure we're looking at what's going on, um, but something like that could be okay. Uh, the issue comes in is when we have 50 GPs and you know all but three or four of them are just raising capital or they're doing asset management, but not really having any say or anything like that. Um, that's where it starts becoming an issue because again, it looks like you are getting a portion of the GP solely for raising capital and that starts looking like a transaction-based compensation which if you don't have a, a license is going to be unlawful gotcha what so, so i guess that's an interesting an interesting gray zone right if, if you can if you're a big part of it like if you had suppose you have three four partners or something like that and one of them is raising all of the capital then that that person becomes you know you said if if they're like a the deal doesn't get done without that particular partner kind of thing is that is that what you're talking about or that person would still have to have the broker dealer license um so i can't speak or i'm going to speak very generally and not specific sure, yeah, yeah generally <laughs> that probably would work again we want to look at each individual situation to see truly what's going on um, and in that situation, again, it's because that piece is very crucial to the whole deal. Whereas if we have to raise 10 million and I'm a capital raiser bringing 300,000, right. sure, that's helpful. But if there's 10 other of me out there, I'm not really that yeah. important to the deal. Gotcha. Yeah, that, no, that, that makes total sense. Then you then you've just got a bunch of, of, you know, small, small chunks of the capital. And it actually just at the, at the conference, we were both asked, at they someone was talking about um special purpose vehicle as far as uh people raising capital as part of the lp side is, is my understanding of it so that they're essentially forming an entity and then raising capital through that entity as one and and that's on the lp side but they they negotiate a better i don't know better terms for that entity i guess is that is is that i guess almost a way around it you're not getting any of the gp side you're just getting essentially truly compensated whether that's you know a percentage or what is that legal <laughs> is the sec like not like that like how does that work so so that could be lawful um the thing is though is that that spv itself is then probably its own security and so whoever's running or managing that spv we need to go through and have their own PPM or whatever exemption stuff they need for that security itself. Um, but yeah, because you know we have funds all the time, hedge funds or what have you, right. can say, oh, this is a great deal. 
I'm bringing in two million to this raise. And so because I'm bringing this big check, I need you to give me better returns. Um, so that happens all the time. And so it's that similar type of situation if we're an SPV, you know, writing a $500,000 check or a, a check that's much larger than the typical investment, um, that SPV would have the ability to, to negotiate essentially uh, slightly better terms. Okay, gotcha. It, yeah, it's, it just seems on the surface anyway, that seems almost the same thing, right? It's still, a, I guess, a transaction-based compensation type of it, or it sounds like a transaction-based compensation. So I, I think it, it's obviously this, all of this speaks to exactly why you need a securities attorney on your team <laughs> if you are doing these deals, because all of these little nuances and everything like that are, you know, it's, I think it's easy to, to mess them up. Like it's easy to Absolutely. make the mistakes. So having someone that's going to sort of uh, be on top of that and check that for you um, is is obviously very very important. Um, I like to whenever I talk to people on the podcast that are you know kind of on the uh, like a broker or an attorney or, or a property manager or some someone who's kind of in that the the team part of the transaction. I always ask like do you do you invest on in your own deals are you are you sort of acting as an investor as well uh it just seems to me like when i see people in your position or i see the brokers especially the brokers i'm like why don't they buy all the deals like it's it just seems like <laughs> it would they have first access it makes sense so do you do you do some investing on your own uh, as well I do do some investing on my own. Uh, for me, I do have to be a bit careful just because there's a potential conflict of uh, yeah conflict of interest if I'm investing in one of my clients' deals because if things go wrong, I can't really sue them. Not that I'd be looking to do that first anyway. Right. Um, so I am a bit cautious when investing with clients, uh, but I do invest uh, in, in passively. Yes. Yeah, but you could invest someone else's client, right? Like a, a oh, some yeah. other syndicator would. There shouldn't be any conflict of interest there. Yeah. Um, I guess one other thing I wanted to maybe expand on is is that broker dealer license, and it I hear a lot about it. You, you mentioned that that's the key. So, what what's involved in that? What is that? What do you do to get that status, and and what does that allow you to do then? So this is a little bit outside of what we regularly deal with, um, but if you think of like a financial advisor, um, they have like Series Six, Series Seven, Series Eighty Three, what have you. Uh, the different series allow them to sell or advise on different things. And so um, you need to make sure that you have a, whatever your license is, it's one that allows you to sell uh, real estate securities in this way. Okay. And so I know typically a long time ago, I looked into like a decade or more ago, I looked into just potentially, you know, seeing what's the process. And I know that there is, I believe there is an exam and then there also, you need to have a sponsor. So a license brokerage has to kind of sponsor you to sit for that exam at least a decade ago that was the rules who knows what they've changed to now okay yeah i've heard it's it's pretty rigorous the the you know process and the test is i think quite challenging so um yeah. not to be <laughs> not to be approached lightly i guess yeah. um all right well nick let's let's switch gears a little bit and i'll i'll ask you the the four questions that i ask every guest and uh, I don't know, maybe there'll be a little bit different uh, track as far as, you know, with you being an attorney, but, but I don't think so. I think they're all they're relevant to anyone. 
Um, and the first one is just based on the, the podcast, the name of the podcast being Know Your Why. And that is, what is your why? What, uh, what drives you and, and kind of pushes you towards success? Um, I think I've got two. One of the kind of easier ones is that I actually really do enjoy what I do. It's fun working with clients. It's fun kind of seeing their deals and the different ways they approach them and kind of getting creative to address their issues and solve those problems. Um, so part of the why is I enjoy, I really do enjoy this. Even as I mentioned, you know, I'm a professor. I just like the law. It fascinates me. It's one of those things where I'm just like, yes, this clicks. I like working in this. Um, so part of it's just that I enjoy it. Um, and then the other part is that growing up, uh, you know, I, my family worked hard. And I remember my dad would always say, you know, never work for somebody else. Because he was a, a machinist at Boeing, which was a good job, uh, fed us and all that sort of stuff. But I just saw kind of his feeling stuck. Um, and particularly back then with less technology, it's a little bit harder to kind of take those risks and get unstuck. And so that always stuck in my mind. And I always had it in my mind that at some point I was going to have my own company or firm or whatever that would be. Um, and so that was a big driver of just kind of the entrepreneurial side and the business owner side of me. Um, and then the other part of that is that, um, you know, while, while my dad did work hard and, you know, we weren't struggling as hard as many people do, um, you know, we didn't have every single option available to us. You know, we'd have to, not that we shouldn't save even when you have money, but we'd have to really plan and think about certain things that we're doing. And so uh, for me, I wanted to make sure that me and my future family just have the ability to take advantage of, of opportunities that we want to take advantage of. And so having those options um, is my big why. Uh, you know, I don't, not super extravagant in whatever I do in most cases, but if I wanted to be, I want to have the option to be. Um, and or if I want to donate to a charity, I want to have the ability to do that. And so having options is really my big why to make sure that with myself or my family, if we want to pursue something or do something, we have the resources and the ability to do so. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I think it's uh, really a, a great kind of descriptor of, of, you know, a level of financial freedom of it's, it's like, you being financially free doesn't mean you have to buy fancy cars or fancy clothes or whatever, you know, whatever luxury things you don't have to that's not what people when people say that that's not really it's just that you don't have to think about it right you don't have to you don't have to think about every every purchase you make every trip you want to make there's you know lots of people that are you know have to think about what they're what they're getting at the grocery store and it's like getting getting to that level of not having to think about it is is really as you said it it, it opens up options so i love that yeah, I was actually uh, laughing with my wife the other day, We or not the other day, a while ago, we went uh, to uh, dinner for her mother's birthday, um, and it's a, a nice restaurant, and I was laughing because I was like, man, we, I remember if, if there was no price on the menu, we would get up and leave because <laughs> we didn't have that option to just yeah. have a good time and it be what it is, and so having those options, again, we don't do that all the time, but being able to sit down and just say, this is what I want for today. And it's a celebration and a special time is nice to have. Right, right. To be essentially, it, to me, it's about you, you have control over experiences, right? You can, you don't have to not have those experiences because you're worried about what it's going to cost. So mm -hmm. uh, I think that that's great. It's like that whole people say, um, if you have to ask, you can't afford it kind of thing. And it's like, <laughs> 
well, yeah, maybe I can't. So let me, <laughs> so I'm going to ask, but uh, you know, that's great. Um, second question, Nick, what do you, tell us something about yourself that, that maybe isn't common knowledge, a, a special skill, a hobby, something uh, that, that not everybody knows about you. Um, lots of, lots of hobbies and skills, and that's kind of where the name polymath comes from. Um, granted, I'm, I'm going to say this, don't ask me to do one because I'm out of practice, but um, I am a, a I, I say aspiring, but I'm pretty good at it. I'm a, a magician. Uh, do some oh. card magic and some coin magic. Been do, doing that for about four or five years. Uh, I went to the uh, Magic Castle. It's, kind of, it's a place in, in Hollywood that yep. you have to be invited. And so I got finally, after years of hearing about it, I was able to go once and just loved it. And so uh, a few months after that, my girlfriend at the time for my birthday got me a, a magic lesson. And after the magic lesson, I was like, oh, this is amazing. And so from there, it's kind of just been my little hobby. Even, even though I said it, like I always have a little deck of cards just right near me with my hands while I'm fiddling around and stuff. So oh, that's you know, awesome. kind of an obscure hobby that I have that not everybody knows I can do. That's, that's very cool. I would imagine, uh, yeah, I won't ask you to do it anyway, because I feel like it would lose the effect on Zoom. It's probably hard to, yeah. <laughs> to do, do magic tricks over Zoom, but, uh, but that's very cool. I, I like that. Um, Next question, what, uh, when people hear this and, and they want to reach out to you, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Uh, best way to reach us is www.polymathlegal.com or on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. It's just at polymathlegal. And I can give first-hand first knowledge uh, that you are an excellent attorney. So I, I, get, I can vouch for you specifically. Um, and the final question, Nick, what piece of advice would you give to people that are, uh, you know, starting their journey, whether it's in real estate or law or just some some meaningful endeavor? What would you tell them to to advise them as far as you know, kind of helping them reach that next level of success? I think I'd say, you know, work hard, keep moving forward, but be patient and kind to yourself. Because um, I know for myself. Uh, you know, a decade ago, I was really working really hard, but not quite having the results that I wanted. And just thinking, you know, why is this? What's going on? And I was talking with a friend of mine, and he calmed me down. And he said, look, you know, the people that we see or where we want to be, they're all like 10 years older than us. Just keep working at it and you'll get there. And sure enough, 10 years later, I, you know, I still have many goals that I, I want to achieve, but I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm moving. I can see that all that hard work a long time ago where I felt like I was treading and going nowhere, it actually did a whole lot of work to get me to where I am today. So really just keep moving forward, even when it feels like you're not progressing, uh, be patient with yourself and just make sure that you're moving forward regularly and you'll get there eventually. Yeah, I love it. That's uh, that's really good advice. I think I'm, I don't know if you've ever read Atomic Habits, I'm about halfway through it now, but it's, it's a really good book that essentially seems at least so far seems to echo exactly that sentiment of just just keep plugging and it's going to feel maybe like you're not making progress in the beginning but but then all of a sudden you'll you sort of wake up one day and you're like oh look at me i i, I guess i did do i guess i did uh, achieve something because all that work i put in really really was worthwhile so yeah just just don't give up so um it's been great, Nick. Thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate I appreciate your time. I appreciate your explanation on some some difficult topics that I think people have a a lot of trouble 
understanding and, and, and being in compliance, which I think is, um, there's probably a lot of things out there that maybe aren't in compliance, not due to actually trying to be fraudulent or something like mm -hmm. just because they don't know better. So um, really good, really good uh, information. So, so thank you. I appreciate it. Yep. Yeah, I'd agree. Uh, there's a lot of kind of, for lack of a better word, innocent non-compliance or, or ignorant non-compliance where they don't know. Um, yeah. yeah, so it's complex, but uh, we can take care of it. And yeah, I appreciate you having me. Uh, happy to come back on whenever you ask me to. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we'll do that again. We'll, 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 we'll come up with some more topics and, and go through them in the future. But, uh, but thank you. And from here, we'll, we'll go ahead and sign off. Thank you. I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you.